Unless you've studied the history or philosophy of science, you may never have heard of Thomas Kuhn, but you probably have heard the phrase paradigm shift. It's a phrase that became popular after Kuhn published his most influential work entitled The Structure of Scientific Revolutions in 1962. Ironically, Kuhn's ideas themselves brought about a paradigm shift in how we view science. On the 50th anniversary of The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, we ponder the significance of Kuhn's work. Is science revolutionary? Does it matter if it is? I'm joined by two experts in the field. Physics historian Jed Buckwald is the Doris and Henry Dreyfus Professor of History at the California Institute of Technology. He was previously the director of the Dibner Institute for the History of Science and Technology and the Byrne Dibner Professor of History and Science at MIT. Welcome. Thank you. And Paul Hoenigen-Hewn is a theoretical physicist and philosopher who is professor of philosophy and founding director of the Center for Philosophy and Ethics of Science at the Leibniz University in Hanover, Germany. Glad you could be here. Hello. Buckle your seatbelts, everybody. This could get a little bit heady, but let's start with the basics. Who was Thomas Kuhn? Tell us a little bit about his life. He was born in Cincinnati, right? Well, yes. Um, Tom who died in 96, was trained as a physicist originally, student of a very famous physicist named Van Vleck. Then after the war, and he worked uh, during the war on various projects, he um, came to Harvard as, in effect, an assistant professor, and there met uh, James Bryant Conant, president of Harvard, very active in changing the way physics was taught, and so on, right after the war. And Conant had asked him to become involved in a history of science teaching program that was really designed not so much for science students in general as for physicists because, you know, physics was in those days, of course, the queen of the sciences. Times have changed a lot since then. (laughs) And that's what brought Tom into the history of science originally. And there are famous stories he always told about how in trying to understand past science, really past science, Greek science even. He couldn't understand it. And it finally, certain ideas came to him about how to interpret it. And those formed the foundations of what turned into this very influential book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. Okay. So both of you guys have a founding in physics. Kuhn was a physicist. Many of the great science historians and philosophers have been physicists. What is it about physics that turns people into philosophers? Well, not necessarily the physics itself, but uh, there is a higher proportion, I think, of physicists uh, among the scientists who are interested in the more basic questions. And they naturally come up when you do physics, if you study relativity or things like that. They are contrary to common sense, opposite to common sense, and you start thinking more deeply about basic conceptual matters than many other scientists do. So, for instance, for the usual chemist, philosophical questions usually do not turn up. I guess my my background was in biology, and it kind of seems to me that somehow pondering the, the origins of life might put you in the same kind of place, but you don't tend to see biologists turning into historians and philosophers at the same rate. It's, uh... Uh, well, you used perhaps not to, but nowadays, uh, actually, I'd say a very large proportion of the field consists of historians of biology. In fact, that's why we're here at the moment, because they hold a meeting each year at the Marine Biological Laboratory on the history of molecular biology and evolutionary biology. Yeah. And in addition, I mean, biologists now care about the ethics of biology. That's a very important Mm -hmm. topic. And in addition, uh, say, in cognitive ethology, where you study the cognitive behavior and cognitive capacities of animals, um, biologists sometimes methodologically come to an impasse and they don't really know what to do. And then they turn to philosophers sometimes. So I've actually heard Kuhn called a sociologist of science rather than a philosopher of science. What's the difference? What's the significance? Or is that just kind of a little bit of a... 
philosopher's well, maybe, insult towards the, uh, well, <laughs> the rest maybe, of the maybe world. Maybe Paul could tell you what the difference is. <laughs> I'm a little vague on that myself, though I was trained by him. And then maybe I can tell you why he didn't think he was a sociologist of science. Well, the point is simply that Kuhn was really the first one who thought that one should take, for a philosophical understanding of science, should take uh, uh, very seriously that it's communities of scientists and not individual scientists who are the subject, the acting subject of science. And in that sense, that's a philosophical, uh, sociological component, which some people took then um, Kuhn's philosophy to be wholly, a, a, a completely a sociology, which is just wrong, because he's just just giving a sort of sociological foundation to his philosophy. Yeah. the uh, <laughs> You see, what he was really interested in was how science works, exactly what it is that goes into the formation of experiments and theories. And in that sense, of course, he was concentrating on the broad community of scientists because science is a collaborative enterprise. After all, scientists write and work not just for themselves but for other scientists. But on the other hand, his real interest was in how the individual groups or the individual scientists work things out. Um, this used to be called – there used to be a distinction in the field called internal and external history of science. When I was first trained by him, that's what they called it. So the internal people would study what I just talked about and the external people would study things like formation of institutions and so on. Uh, and Tom, who, as Paul said, is very strongly associated with a focus, an increasing focus on the institutional stuff, was actually himself – really only interested in the internal stuff. <laughs> so just a bit of a misunderstanding, I guess, in, in communicating what it was he was really interested in? I, I, yes, I don't think it was entirely not Tom's fault a little bit uh, because he projected, uh, you know, the book had such a tremendous influence at the time, which I know you want to hear about, yeah. but that uh, it, 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 it led him to be asked questions that he answered often in ways that led people to conclusions that were somewhat at odds with the way he really thought. Okay, so let's let's talk about the book. The, the Structure of Scientific Revolutions, uh, published in 1962, as I understand it, the essence of the argument was basically that there are two kinds of science. There's normal science, is what he called it, where things are proceeding incrementally. We've got a, a worldview or a paradigm that we think this is how things work, and each experiment gives us new details working within that paradigm. And that's what he called normal science. And then there was something else, that he called revolutionary science. So so what is revolutionary science? How is that different? Well, first of all, it's not really two kinds of science, but it's one science going through different phases. So you may have a phase in physics, say, for instance, a phase of normal science, and then uh, that may change into a phase of revolutionary science. The point simply is you get into a phase of revolutionary science more or less automatically when normal science doesn't work any longer, if you just cannot continue. And then you start thinking about the framework you're using, and then you're starting critically uh, to question it, and then you try to replace it by another framework. So why wouldn't normal science work? What's what's an example of, of where normal science Well, if you look, for instance, fail? in physics, if you look at the, the quantum theory of 1922, this was Bohr's model, and it was worked wonderful for, wonderfully for seven years or so. People could solve one problem after the other. And in 1922, from 1922 on, people did not find solvable problems any longer. It just didn't work. So it wasn't just for the fun of it that they tried to revolutionize them, the physics of the time, but those were simply forced to it. It just didn't work any longer. And then that's the typical situation that you have significant anomalies that make the uh, further pursuit of normal science impossible. And then people turn to be revolutionary. 
So, I guess he, he didn't, did he or did he not coin the phrase paradigm shift? I've, I've heard well, it he said did. that he, he coined it, did. he popularized it. Mm-hmm. it, it I mean, you, you do have to remember what <laughs> the general view. First of all, we were in a period then where the American public, at least, was a lot less skeptical about scientific expertise, especially following the developments in the war. I mean, not only did you have the bomb, you had radar, jet planes started appearing. Everything was different. Um, I remember the era pretty well. I was growing up in the 50s, and, you know, there was a tremendous amount of respect for expertise at the time. (laughs) And um, the the idea that uh, uh, there was something that physicists in particular could figure out and could do that would work very well was tremendously influential. And the general notion was that scientists, even the popular notion, progress by steps. That is, they don't have a kind of overarching thing which changes radically when they run into what Paul just called puzzles, problems, anomalies, and so on, but rather that it's like building a brick wall and you take the little pieces out and you put new pieces in and build things up one by one altogether. And the way Tom thought is radically different from that, that things do change very rapidly, almost like the wall collapses all of a sudden when you run into an increasing number of problems that can't be handled. Um, One difficulty he had with that always was if that was the case, how do you assimilate what did work in the past? And that generated lots of discussions, but he had answers for that. But, But so it was so revolutionary in part because of the respect for science and in part because of the way people thought science was a kind of directly cumulative enterprise. Do you think that this idea that uh, essentially that science could be completely wrong about something and need to come up with a completely new way of looking at things, do you think that changed that respect that people had for science, that it challenged that respect in some way? Well, that's difficult to say whether Kuhn was uh, the main cause here. I mean, the times have changed regarding science, not only in this country, but uh, around the world. People have lost some sort of respect, also in ethical uh, respect. So it's very difficult to say. Uh, But the point is, the very important point is that there is some cumulativity in Kuhn retained, namely that technically working solutions will be working technically later as well, even if you changed your general outlook. So if you look, for instance, at classical physics from the point of view of quantum mechanics, some of the concepts of classical physics are no longer valid in quantum mechanics, but they still work if you have applications uh, for which uh, classical physics is just competent. Like what? Well, I mean, if you build a house or a ship or something and you need some physics or some material science, you you don't need the, the subtleties of quantum mechanics for that. If you want to calculate certain things in astronomy, the movement of the moon or eclipses or so, you still use classical physics. You don't need neither relativity nor quantum mechanics. So these things are simply in place and they can be used again and again. If you go to the, turn to the fundamentals, then, of course, uh, the picture changes. But that's only valid then if you go to these very high energies or very, very um, tiny distances and things like that. Then the quantum, uh, quantum world becomes manifest and you can't work with the classical concepts any longer. Uh, we're talking a lot about physics here, and I know that was in part because that was his background. But is this applicable to all science or is this something that you think is, is more unique about physics because there are, are these different levels, kind of the applied versus the more, uh, not esoteric, but I guess what you're talking about, the, the fundamental kind of how the, the universe is built at a very fundamental level seem to be kind of two different areas. No, no, I think it's, I mean, the claim would be that it's applicable to all sciences. 
And in fact, you know, if you will, the paradigmatic example of such a thing is the development of the theory of evolution itself. Um, not that it was unprecedented, although in terms of the mechanism and the full set of claims, uh, when Darwin published The Origin of Species in 15, 1859, it was a radical change, a deeply radical change. And of course, because it reached across people's religious and political beliefs, it had more of an impact than probably anything before that ever had. And it's really the primary example, if you will, of a radical, rapid, and hugely influential change, which also altered the way physiologists, comparative anatomists, and others looked at biological entities. So he was writing about this idea of a paradigm shift in science, but in writing about it, he was creating his own paradigm shift in how science was viewed, right? How was this actually received by scientists, by the science community kind of did they say, oh, yeah, that's what we've been doing all along and kind of recognize it? Or was it really something that, that, that got a lot of pushback from scientists? Well, it was highly controversial. Some scientists were very happy with that because they could recognize their science in the philosophy of science or history of science. Well, in the history of science, of course, it was always recognizable, but not in the philosophy of science. And this was a book which was also a philosophy book. And then uh, physicists especially could recognize their own science uh, in something that a philosopher had written. Others were unhappy about that. That depended on your philosophical stance. If you as a scientist had a certain idea about, say, science approaching the truth, then you would find uh, statements in Kuhn's book uh, which were opposing that idea, and then you wouldn't like it really. Uh, so it was as almost everything that Kuhn did in his life, it was always controversially um, accepted, and uh, more so than uh, in other philosophers, say, of the 20th century. This is one of the things that I really uh, quite interesting, uh, the controversies and confusions in the reception of Kuhn's work. So, I mean, we've all had the experience where somebody points something out to us that we hadn't noticed before, and then all of a sudden, you feel like you're seeing it everywhere. Is that kind of what happened within the scientific community? And, and do you think there was actually an increase in the the rate or the, the, the frequency of these paradigm shifts? Did science become more revolutionary because somebody had formalized the idea that it could be? No, I don't think so. I don't think there's been there's been a lot of discussion. And <clears throat> well, let me let me put it to you this way. I'll tell you a little story then instead. Um when uh historians of science do history, one of the things I've always told my students never to read before they actually read how somebody does a calculation is the preface to a paper. And the reason for that is that prefaces are written as it were, as pieces of rhetoric to persuade people. And they don't really necessarily reflect what was going on. And I think that after the structure was published, you did not infrequently find scientists referring in preface-like materials to the structure. But if you actually look at what they did and do, I don't think, and Kuhn wouldn't, first of all, he wouldn't have wanted it to happen, and second of all, I don't think he thought that it did happen, that there was any effect on the actual practice of science itself, and neither should there be. Yeah. That's especially obvious if you look at the social sciences. In psychology, for instance, there were literally thousands of uh, quotes from Kuhn. But if you looked at the content, I mean, 95% of these quotes were purely rhetorical, no content. 
What do you, what do you mean, no kind? Well, it didn't change the signs. It was just dressing. <laughs> and it was just window dressing. So before people uh, talked about logical empiricism or talked about proper critical rationalism in their prefaces, and then it was more fashionable to talk about Kuhn. But if you look at it, then they say, oh, yes, we, we have a paradigm here. And then a quote, a Kuhn structure of scientific revolutions, 1962, nothing specific. It was just window dressing. Do you think that the idea of revolutionary science became kind of fashionable? It became people wanted to be the one who published the revolution, the big change, that that big discovery. I mean, that, that seems to be, at least in public perception of science today, that's kind of what, you know, it, it's hard to craft a headline around, we figured out another detail, <laughs> right? You know, you want like, oh my God, we've got this world changing discovery that has just been made. And, and so there's kind of this push to, to find revolutionary science almost and present that uh, that view to the public, I think. Whereas it's not quite as sexy to yeah. to just add but, a detail to the paradigm. But I don't think that there is much of an influence of Kuhn in that respect. I mean, if you look at earlier times, say in the 1920s with Einstein's uh, things in general relativity, I mean, there was a big, uh, big um, uh, public attention to that as well without any Kuhn. So something very new and uh, worldview shattering has always been interesting. And I don't think that Kuhn added very much to that. It's, it's a difficult question to judge that really. Uh, but my impression would be that didn't change very much in that respect. No, I think that's that's undoubtedly right. Um, I mean, there are a number of things you have to remember if you take the longer historical view, because for one thing, until sometime in the middle of the 19th century, maybe a little bit earlier in France and Britain, the public image of science was almost non-existent. I mean, people weren't that interested in these things. Um, then when uh, various developments began to occur, things like the first battery, the voltaic pile, when you could uh, uh, stimulate dead tissue and have it click around, you know, it stimulated Mary Shelley to write Frankenstein, you began to get more of an attention. But I think that the initial reaction to Tom's book, and, and I was a student a few years later at, uh, at Princeton where he had come to teach, uh, was you have to remember the period. Um, it had an effect initially, but its real effect started to hit in the mid-60s. And the mid-60s was the period of the Vietnam War and student protests. And revolution was in the air everywhere in those days. I remember it well. Uh, protests and so on. The Princeton campus was alive with these things. Tom never really got much involved in that, although unlike some of the professors I knew, he wasn't pulling out what remained of his hair over it at the time. But it certainly you know, increased the uh, the influence and, and power of what he'd written. You know, the word revolution was right there in the title. Yeah, I mean, did he, he was introducing this new idea of a, a new, not kind of science, but you said phase of science. Obviously, you can't have one without the other, right? But right. do you think he felt that one was more important than the other? Or were they, they really just equal halves? necessary no, complements to each other. As, as you say, you can't have one without the other. In order to a revolution to occur, you must have first a tradition that is then revolutionized. Uh, and the revolution really lives uh, on the on the capital, so to speak, uh, that, that was uh, collected in normal science, that you have a, a working tradition that is then uh, overturned. So it's really, in, a, in some sense, it's even two sides of a coin. It's just one thing. It's science, and you work with a framework, and then the framework doesn't work any longer, and then you turn it around, and you change it, and then you go on again with a new framework. 
We've talked a lot about the fact that there's been controversy and misunderstanding around Kuhn's work, potentially more than any other 20th century philosopher. You, you both knew him well. Was that a source of frustration for him, or, or did that even register? Oh yeah, for that him? bothered him a lot. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that indeed, bothered, it sure bothered him. All right. <laughs> yes, of course, he would have loved to be better understood. So, uh, did he? Was there any particular effort that he made to try to change this, or did he just kind of uh-huh. keep at it the the way he'd been doing things? Well, I don't know. Tom, Tom was a complicated man. He was a big proponent of psychoanalysis, for instance. He himself had been analyzed extensively. And he tended, and, and, and here I speak more as when I was 20 years old listening to him lecture me if I did something he didn't like, <laughs> which uh, was not infrequent in those days with his students. He was very forceful. And so he tended to psychologize a lot of things. And he took things, and I wouldn't say he took things personally, although to some extent he did with some of his critics uh, who... I don't know deliberately, but uh, obtusely, both in his view and frankly in my view, really didn't understand what he was driving at there. A lot of his critics thought he was attacking science. He wasn't attacking science in any way at all. He was trying to show how it rationally actually works. But he did say certain things, which I think, and and I know Paul does too, make a lot of sense, but unless you're willing to spend the time to understand what that might mean, sound a little bit like he's attacking science. Attacking science in what way? Saying that, that it's not valid, that it's not uh-huh. Let me getting say, at the truth? Okay. Well, that's a good thing. I'll say one thing and then Paul say something, I'm sure. <laughs> so why don't we distinguish between two words or two ways of spelling the same word, truth with a capital T and truth with a small t. Tom unquestionably believed in truth with a small t, namely those successfully solved problems that remain successfully solved over time. I mean, as Paul mentioned, the, the laws of Newtonian mechanics that are used to send spaceships to the, to the moon and in orbit are no different now than they were then. Um, relativity, general relativity changed only one thing. Our GPS things work because they have to recalculate things based on general relativity. But that is, those are things that remain permanently effective. But um, does the accumulation of truth with small t's, lots of them, ever lead to the production of truth with a capital T, which I think in Tom's view was a kind of metaphysical idea that you know, you're never going to really get at something that is so absolutely truth that it just underlies everything. We've talked a little bit about the fact that respect for science has eroded, at least in the American public in in recent decades. And we've got all of these very hot-button debates that really come down to what is the truth and can science get us to that truth with a capital T? Is evolution the truth? Is climate change the truth? And these have become very polarized debates in the U.S. Do you see any influence of of Kuhn in those those debates, or do you think this is just a more uh, general societal societal trend? Well, I guess in the background there is some influence by Kuhn, and that is uh, 
he was seen as attacking the authority of science. That's another way of putting it. And then there were very powerful movements in history of science, in sociology of science, uh, also quite forcefully attacking the authority of science and describing science as an enterprise that was more, more or less subjective. And you find that in history of science as well today, and you find it in the sociology of science. And that added to a general climate in the humanities now and the social sciences now with their social constructivist movements and so on, uh, which tend to say, well, science is just a cultural product as anything else, like religion or anything else, what you believe. And that, of course, demolishes uh, the authority of science. And then the general public, including, of course, uh, so many undergraduates in many universities, they are so skeptical about science and they think, well, we, I don't believe them. I don't, I, that, that's like religion or so. And that's, that's, of course, an undercurrent in many of these discussions. People are much more willing to doubt scientific results than there were, say, for instance, in the 50s. In the 50s, what's quite clear when a physicist or the physics community said something, that everybody believed, yes, that's right. Whereas today, if, you, if scientists say something which you don't feel comfortable with, you say, well, that's probably an interest of these scientists and things like that. So there is a, there is a decrease in the, in the authority of science. And there, of course, Kuhn was an input unwillingly. He hated it. So Absolutely. you think if, if, as you said, he passed away in 1996, do you think mm. if he saw the debates in this country today about climate change and about evolution that that, that would really dishearten him? Um, I think it would dishearten him. I don't think he'd be terribly surprised because, I mean, let's, you know, let's be clear about something. There is no debate about evolution or climate change among the vast majority of practicing scientists. There isn't a single person here at the MBL, the Marine Biological Lab, who doesn't see evolution as the foundation of biology, for which there is a vast amount of evidence, to say nothing of the same being true at, uh, at, with my colleagues at Caltech in climate change. There is no issue on this. There's an issue in the public because it's become so heavily politicized, particularly in this country. Uh, and, and that's, you know, the very unfortunate reflection of the lack of understanding that m not all scientists under all times, but most scientists are not in the, in the business uh, to, um, you know, score political points or to take advantage of things. I mean, I have heard it said that climate change proponents are in it because that's how they're going to get grants. This is utter nonsense. And anybody who spent a second will see that. So I don't think Kuhn would be personally disturbed with the political debate because that's understandable on other grounds. So you've you've mentioned that uh, that actually this change in how we view science affects what science does get funded. Let's talk about how science really does get funded and that Kuhn's ideas have kind of influenced maybe what science gets funded today. I don't really know, and I would doubt it. Um, I mean, if if the background was, oh, today revolutionary science get, uh, gets more easily funded than non-revolutionary science, I wouldn't know. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd like to see an empirical investigation of these matters. I mean, we have many prejudices. We know many special cases. But an overall picture emerging, I don't see it. I'd, I'd, I doubt it. I, I doubt it also. I mean, as Paul said, there has been... Um, a collateral – I mean, I have heard climate science deniers quoting Kuhn. There's no question about that. It's had this – but he can't be held responsible 
for that sort of thing. Yeah. All girls, who quoted Cooney, said it's one of the biggest, b- b- best books in the world, right? Yes. <laughs> exactly. So everyone can quote Kuhn. Right. You know, it can go, go all kinds of different ways. As to whether it's had an effect on science funding, I don't think so in the United States because you know, science is in, is, is, funding is in bad shape right now. But that has nothing to do with Kuhn. That has a lot to do with the current political situation rather than anything else. Well, I want to thank you both for an enjoyable and educational conversation. Judd Buckwald is a physics historian at the California Institute of Technology. Uh, Paul Hoenigan-Hune is a theoretical physicist and philosopher at the Leibniz University of Hanover. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. Thank you. And I would like to invite both of you to continue the conversation about this with our listeners on our website. Here's how that works. I'll post a copy of this conversation on our website. You can find that at capeandislands.org. Click on Living Lab. And if you have thoughts or questions, you can post them as a comment there. You can also tweet them to Twitter handle at Living Lab Radio, and uh, we will include you guys in that conversation. This is Living Lab on the Point. I'm Heather Goldstone. Thanks for listening, and we hope to hear from you soon.